This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I'm your host, Kaylin Les. Every month, the One Thing team hosts a live interview with a special guest, and we invite you, our community, to join us. While Jeff gets to have most of these live conversations, last month, Jay Papasan, co-author of The One Thing Book, got behind the mic to share a conversation with an award-winning researcher whose science-based approach to behavior change has helped individuals and organizations conquer their goals and get from where they are to where they want to be. In this episode, you'll hear the recording, the replay from that conversation, and learn how to break down the common problems we all face when we set out to create change in our life. Because the truth is that even the best laid plans, habits, and intentions can be derailed by familiar pitfalls. As you listen, take note of the simple strategies you can use to make change possible and the research that backs it up. Because when you understand what's standing between you and success, you can tailor fit a solution to your needs so that no goal is too big and no barrier is immovable. With that, let's get into this conversation with award-winning behavior scientist and author of the new book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Here's Jay Papasan and Katie Milkman. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is, Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. I'm super excited to get to chat with Katie Milkman, um, author of How to Change. I reached out. I saw this book come out. I can't remember if I heard you on a podcast first or not. Oh, I remember uh, Angela Duckworth wrote about this book in her newsletter that I read. I went and got the book. Then I reached out to her and said, would you make an introduction? And that's how we got to meet. Yes, I remember that. And it was so wonderful to get a chance to connect. I really appreciate you reaching out. And, and congrats on all your success. This book has uh, really done well. Uh, you're a first-time author, and your book has come out into the world. You've been in the top 50 business books, I think, for the first whole first month that you came out, which is, it's a very tough market out there. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I'm really pleased with how it's been received and feel extremely lucky and grateful. How many podcasts and shows do you think you've been on? Because like it seems like I just turned on randomly. I think it was... Freakonomics Radio, or maybe it was like the the TED Talk Hour. And I'm like, I recognize that voice. I told my wife, and then finally I realized that it was you talking. You've really made the circuit, haven't you? (laughs) There have been a lot of podcasts. I think, you know, it's interesting releasing a book in this era that... You, you know, you can't go out and do the signings that you would normally do. 
Uh, and instead, the big substitute is so many podcasts. And I've really enjoyed it, honestly. So many great conversations. It's been a tremendous amount of fun. So I feel lucky in some strange ways that uh, I've had that opportunity because it's been unique. Let's let's go back in time. Uh, I mean, you're primarily a researcher, right? So tell, introduce everybody. I could read your bio, but um, you are a researcher. You're a professor, so you're a teacher. You're asking big questions. You're also trying to help your students answer them. How, how did this book, How to Change, come to life? Where where does this come from? Thank you for asking me that question. I'm a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and a researcher. I study the science of behavior change, both looking at how organizations can encourage their employees to make positive change in their lives and also how individuals can make positive change. And I've really been studying this now for the better part of two decades and felt like I had enough accumulated knowledge that it was time to share and put it out there and make everything I knew available to a broader audience than the audience of just academics I'm used to writing for. And in terms of the origins of the work, I should really say that the big aha moment came for me in my career that led me to this book about a decade ago. And it was when I was sitting at a seminar at the medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. I would hang out over there occasionally because we have a great group of scholars thinking about behavior change in health. And I saw this graph. I know it's so nerdy to say that a graph changed my life, but a graph changed my life. And it was in this presentation, a graph of the percentage of premature deaths caused by different sources. And what was amazing and totally blew my mind is that the largest wedge in this pie chart of premature deaths and their causes was not you know, environmental toxins or, or accidents or genetic factors, but actually behaviors that we could change. 40% of premature deaths in the United States are due to decisions we make about things like what we eat, whether or not we exercise, whether we drink and smoke and are safe when we get into vehicles. They accumulate in a way that I truly had never appreciated. And seeing that graph made me realize that the work I was already doing somewhat casually on behavior change, if I really was laser focused on this topic for the rest of my career, it could have a much bigger impact on a much more important set of outcomes than I'd appreciated. And I don't only study this in the context of health. That's a major area. I also look at it when it comes to people's financial decisions, as well as their educational outcomes and productivity at work. I've never seen a similar graph showing how those small decisions add up, but it's really easy to make the leap once you've seen it, how much these small decisions accumulate in the domain of health that they must accumulate elsewhere too. So that really motivated me to focus on this and made me also appreciate that there was a big opportunity when I felt ready to write a book to help improve a lot of lives. I love that. So, I mean, at the at the end of the day, you're like, your goal might be the ultimate measure of your success with this book is like it could be in lives saved someday, right? You know, that would be amazing. And and I would also love it if we could find some way to quantify that and to see whether or not books like this actually can help improve outcomes. Angela Duckworth and I have been talking a lot about that recently, whether or not there is some rigorous way we should run a study to evaluate whether giving people access to different kinds of books along these lines that share science and principles on, on how to improve people's life could actually change outcomes for them. There's a few, I can't remember the name. There's a podcast out there where each week they try to live a different kind of productivity or success book. 
so not research, but anecdotal. And wasn't the Happiness Project, um, I'm trying to think of the author's name, didn't she do that as well? She tried on different pursuits and tried, so like bringing a little rigor to something that people are already curious about, um, that would be really cool. So I'll, I'll definitely throw our really hat great. in the ring if we need to do a research group. My, my aha. Wonderful. I shared uh, with share with you once that I wrote my co-author. We were writing a business book, right? We fundamentally were focused on how do we become more productive, and then we realized that approach was going to blossom into other areas. And um, the the most feedback I've gotten from any audience has been around how they've applied a business book to their health. So I'll go back oh, to your your medicine. And your experience in the, the that ward or the hospital, I'm trying to imagine like you're just sitting there casually looking at some graph and then having this moment, you know, this fork in the road for your life. I got chill bumps when you shared that um, because you're tapping into purpose, which is a whole other conversation. Like, why do we choose to do hard things? Why do we choose to even pursue behavior change? Because it's not easy, right? There's a lot of work. Hopefully there's a big reason behind it. So I'll just applaud you. I know that you had to make some major adjustments. But uh, I do think that health, we get really great feedback. So I do think that's one of the reasons that behavior change there, you know, eight or nine weeks, which feels like a long time, but is relatively short, you can get a great feedback loop on your exercise habit or your diet habit. You start to see results and others start to see them too. Um, and I'll just be honest with you, where I want to go deep with you, you've got, I think, eight chapters. I've got, you can't see it. I've got so many notes. I always go, I write down page numbers in the opening page and so I can quickly go back and find all of my favorite spots in a book. But you've got, no, seven chapters and you've addressed different things. But the theme I wanted to pull through, our audience, a lot of them, we do a thing called a 66-day challenge. And I acknowledge, I acknowledge to you that 66 is just an average. It's not a magic number. It's like the 10,000-hour rule. It represents a journey you take to acquire a new habit. But it's a part of our culture. And I kept having all of these ahas about if you're seeking behavior change, right? That there, there are good ways to approach it and bad ways to approach it. And you've got some really fantastic insights. So with your permission, I'm just going to throw a few, hopefully they're softballs, right? Right down the middle for you to knock out of the park. But I want to tap into some of the ideas that you, I mean, pretty much state are research facts that we can tap into when we go on this journey. Is that okay with you? That sounds really fun. I'm excited. So, and I'll encourage our audience. Um, I know we had over 1,200 people, I think, register for this. And uh, a lot of them will watch it. It'll be recorded and sent to them. We have about, I don't know, roughly about 300 with us right now live. If you've got questions, use the chat and the questions. Kaylin, who you heard at the beginning, she's going to be serving up questions to me on the side. And I'll try to make sure we have some time before the end of our time here today to direct some of your questions right at Katie. So first and foremost, let's talk about, um, I'm not going to, I'm trying not to follow the order of the book. I'm going straight to Andre Agassi, which I'm not going to do. We can do that later, but fresh starts. <laughs> so my wife and I uh, are 16 weeks into a massive lifestyle change. I shared with you, we 
really tried to change our diet. We added like a lot of folks, we added a lot of unwanted pounds during COVID. And we decided that coming out of COVID, we were going to make massive lifestyle change, like how much we would allow ourselves to drink socially or at home, how much chocolate we would have while streaming Netflix, and also just basically re-engineering our meals. And I think we started looking to food uh, as more of a comfort and a security blanket that it needed to be for our lives, and that was having health consequences. And I hypothesized in your book, I was like, oh my gosh, we're on the right track. We kind of said, if we're going to change our diet, we've got to do it before we're going to dinner parties and going to movie theaters and restaurants. So this might be a moment in time. And you gave it a name for me that all of us, everybody, if you only get one thing from this, that this moment in time, as we're coming out of the pandemic, you can declare it a fresh start. And by saying it's a fresh start, we have a better chance of achieving the change we want. So talk to us a little bit about fresh starts. That was some of the most compelling stuff that you shared. Well, first, thank you. I'm so glad that you found that compelling. And I absolutely love your story. I'm so glad that this fresh start has been helpful to you. And I'm excited to share this research that was actually motivated by a question that I got about a decade ago when I was giving a talk at Google, of all places. I was out visiting their headquarters in Mountain View, California, and I was giving a presentation about some of my other work on behavior change. And I got this fantastic question from one of the leaders of their HR group. They're called people analysts at Google. And the question was, okay, Katie, we're convinced that it's a good idea to encourage behavior change, to help our employees make better decisions about their health and wellness, to use behavioral science to nudge them in positive directions there and to improve their financial security. But if we're going to offer these kinds of tools and programs to our employees, is there some ideal time to encourage change? Because we're wondering if there's an ideal time when people are most motivated to change. And I just thought it was such a fantastic question. And to my knowledge, at that point, no one had really dug into this as to whether or not there are ideal moments when we're more motivated to change or more likely to be open to change. And so uh, it kickstarted this, this whole journey for me exploring that idea. I actually came back to Philadelphia and started talking to one of my amazing PhD students, um, Heng Chen Dai, who's now a professor at UCLA, and also Jason Reese, who's a senior fellow at Wharton, about the question I'd gotten and about my intuitions and their intuitions about when people might be particularly motivated to change. And of course, the first thing that occurred to all of us, which probably you know is occurring to anyone listening to this and watching this, is that um, New Year's is a moment when people are particularly motivated to change, right? We know that about 40% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. And that seems like it's not just that it's a socially constructed phenomenon that this is a time when we change, but maybe there's something else there too. And maybe it's a broader set of moments that have those features. So we started reading about the literature on New Year's and how people generally think about their lives and think about time. And what we learned is that New Year's in general to people feels like a fresh start moment, like they're turning the page. And there are actually a lot of moments in our lives when we feel like we have a chapter break. We don't think about time as a linear progression, but rather we think 
something as if we're characters in a book, right? So you might have the college years and, you know, the Boston years and um, maybe the, the years before you have children, the years with children at home. There are all these different chapter breaks. And whenever a chapter break arises, we get this sense of a discontinuity. So just like New Year's, those discontinuity moments, those chapter breaks, we get the sense that, you know, that was the old me. That was the old me in the, the former chapter and the new me is here now. And, and the new me feels disconnected from past failures. So maybe last year I failed to quit smoking or to really get in shape, but that was the old me. And this is the new me. And the new me, we believe, can do it. So what we found in our research is that there are all these different chapter breaks, all these moments when we have that added motivation. We call these fresh starts uh, after these boundary points. And we've we've studied them specifically in the context of um, temporal boundaries. So they can occur, you know, when we make a move or switch to a new job. We focused on calendar dates. And we found that at the beginning of a new week or a new month, following holidays, following birthdays, these are all moments when people feel like they have a fresh start. And they're motivated, more motivated than usual to change. And we see that people search more for the term diet on Google, that they're more likely to go to the gym than usual at these moments, that they're also more likely to set goals on a popular goal-setting website around um, everything from their financial goals, their educational goals, to their health goals. Those all spike at the start of a new uh, week, month, year, following holidays, following birthdays. And so... That's really how we first started studying this and, and named the fresh start effect. But what I want to also note that I think is really interesting about it is we've done research showing that these are moments when you can also encourage change. So when we first were studying this, we showed that this happens naturally. But what I think is really interesting about it is also we've now shown that these are moments when if you encourage change or someone decides they want to make a change we can capitalize on that motivation, those spikes in motivation. So if we encourage someone, for instance, to start saving after a birthday or at the start of spring or to start pursuing a goal, then we see these spikes in their likelihood of succeeding. So I think that's really exciting that these fresh start moments in our lives can give us that extra motivation and we can take advantage of it to really springboard ourselves towards change. All right. I love that. Thank you for a great and thorough answer. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to parse out some of this. So for our folks, if you're thinking about launching a new habit, a new behavior in your life, or starting, as we would call it, a 66-day challenge, when you start matters. So and I, this is a nuance. Like for the American audience, we think of the beginning of the week as Monday. And I know that in Europe, all the calendars start Sunday. So is it Monday or is it the first day of the week? Oh my gosh, I love that you asked that question. It's such a great question because there's actually this really wonderful research done by another team um, led by Ben Converse showing that if you change the way a calendar displays to people, so some people are randomly assigned to see calendars starting on Monday and others are randomly assigned to see weekly calendars starting on Sunday, you'll actually change when the people are most motivated to start pursuing new goals. So if they see Monday as the start of the week, that's when motivation spikes. If they see Sunday, you actually see an increase in goal pursuit on Sunday instead of Monday. So really love that you asked that question. And absolutely, it's the case that whatever date is going to be meaningful to you as the start of the week is the one that you want to jump on as your fresh start. That's good. So, and the, the other ones are, can you look out at the calendar and find something that feels momentous? Like we've uh, tried to get a lot of people who want to wake up early 
I use if I first question I ask is, are you on daylight savings time? And if they say yes, I'll say, well, the fall is a great time to do that, right? Because everybody is experiencing this time where we're resetting our clocks. Just keep getting up at the same time and you've lost no sleep and you're getting up an hour earlier on the clock. But that's like a moment in time, right? We switch times twice a year if you're in the daylight savings. The first day of summer, the first day of spring, the equinox, whatever that is. Um, what about uh, birthdays divisible by five or 10? Because we make a big deal out of those. Yeah, that's such a great point. And actually, there's research by another team, Adam Alter and Hal Hirschfeld, um, showing that people actually search for meaning more around round number birthdays and actually leading up to them, they can make some big changes in their lives because you know before you leave your 30s or your 40s or your 50s, you maybe have something you want to achieve. So not only are fresh starts momentous, but there are these really big boundaries and sometimes we hurry to achieve something before them as well. Right now, and we don't, if you can give the short version, I just I'm, I actually watched a little bit of the All-Star baseball game but one of the phenomenons around fresh starts, like it was hard to find a data set. Like, how do we get a big data set? Y'all use baseball. Can you, is that even something we can try to tackle in three minutes or less? Okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> I'd say actually, I, I really love this study and I love that you asked about it. And I should actually say it's not even my work. It's the work of my student. Peng Chen Dai, who I mentioned earlier, who is a collaborator on all of this work on Fresh Starts, really a leader of it. Um, and she had been working on this with me, the topic of Fresh Starts. As part of her dissertation, it was time for her to write her sole author dissertation chapter. And that's when she got this great idea to look at baseball players and Fresh Starts. And it was based on a hunch that she and I had been talking about that maybe Fresh Starts aren't always good news. That we had been studying Fresh Starts in context where people wanted to make a, a change because they weren't achieving something that they hoped to achieve. But we started wondering if maybe Fresh Starts can sometimes be harmful if people are doing really well. And Heng Chen realized she could study this by looking at extremely interesting data on the performance of major league baseball players. Specifically, she was interested in a phenomenon in Major League Baseball where players get traded in the middle of a season to a new team, and that gives them something of a fresh start. But it turns out there's two different types of trades that happen with really different implications. One type of trade is you go to a new team in the same league and you hold on to all of your season-to-date statistics. So it's a fresh start in the sense that you're moving to a new place, but you don't have to work to rebuild a reputation. In another kind of trade, a cross-league trade, though, you actually have your season-to-date statistics wiped clean and you have to start all over again. So Heng Chen thought it would be interesting to compare these two types of fresh starts, one of which is much stronger than the other. Even though everything is the same, you're moving to a new place. In one case, you lose your past performance record. So what happens then to your subsequent performance? And she looked at players who had been having a really good season before their trade, um, as well as players who'd been having a bad season to see if there were any differences in what happened to them when they got traded across leagues versus between um, teams in the same league. And the fascinating result is that when players got traded across league rather across leagues rather than within leagues, and they had to sort of restart in that sense, their performance was wiped clean you saw this big bump in performance for players who'd been having a rough season, right? Two players both having a rough season, one gets their slate wiped clean. The one with the clean slate does better than the one who'd had identical performance to date already. But 
she saw just the opposite phenomenon for players who've been doing really well. If you were having a great season and now you get traded across leagues and you have to lose all of that history, now you see a decline in performance relative to another player who otherwise was identical, but got to hold on to their season to date statistics. So I think this is a really fascinating study that Heng Chen did highlighting how harmful it can be when we get a disruption if we've been doing well. I actually, I was having a, uh, I don't play poker very often, but every now and then I get a dad's group together. And because we're not professional poker players, at least three or four times a night, somebody will try to slide a card across the table. It'll flip over and we'll have to declare a redeal. If you had bad cards, you're happy. If you had good cards, you're like, no, let's play it, right? And so the phenomenon is if you've got positive momentum, I, my takeaway is, do I really want to do another 66-day challenge to go from 80% to 90%? Because what I might actually do is lose my momentum instead of just rebuilding it. But if I'm struggling, which is when that's a whole New Year's Eve, we're almost always trying to reset. So in that framework, it works. All right, got I'm going to jump that's around. That's a really nice person. I'm going to test your knowledge of your book because the other place, I'm jumping to page 140, but you talk about- I don't know what's on that page. No, yeah, yeah. You, you don't have this whole thing memorized. Um, research, <laughs> research suggests that by tracking your exercise, your joke production, or even your virtuousness, you'll increase your chances of changing your behavior. Can you talk to us a little bit about, because I'm kind of an advocate, our group, we're always coming up with different ways to track. Why is tracking important? You know, tracking is so useful because if you aren't tracking, of course, you have no idea how things are going. So you can't celebrate your successes. You can't learn from what's not working if you don't have any data to show what's happening when. So that's a really basic reason. But the other reason I think tracking is important is because it really draws attention to something. So just like goal setting, one of the reasons that goal setting rate is useful is that it creates more of a laser focus on the outcome you're trying to achieve. And tracking does that too. Because now you're drawn to see what's happening and to try to understand it better. Um, one of my favorite studies, which I actually don't describe in the book, but I'll mention now, is this: it was a study that was done, of all things, of um, water usage. And it was trying to get people to take shorter showers. And people were being randomly assigned in this really simple experiment to either uh, a shower monitor that was tracking their performance or by performance, I mean how much water they were using during the shower. And it was either doing so privately, so it wasn't showing them their performance. It was just tracking it and sending it to the research team. Or it was displaying and sort of ticking upward as people were in the shower. And quite naturally, what the researchers found is that showing people in real time how much water they were using caused them to use a lot less of it. So if you sort of think about this as an attentional mechanism, right? If you're not paying attention, how are you going to realize, wow, that was a really long shower? It's the same kind of attention mechanism that I think drives the usefulness of tracking in lots of settings. Like if you're wearing a Fitbit or tracking your sleep or whatever choices you're making to track something. I, I can be so addicted to it. Like I like to track my walks and all of that. And uh, there's that what the hell effect, right? Where if you break the chain, you can just like... It starts with just one chip and then you eat the whole plate of nachos. Like I've already done a little bad. I might as well use this cheat day. But um, there are times like if my I didn't get credit for the walk, it's like it's such a letdown for me. So maybe that's more about me than the process. 
Yes, that it really, it's such a good example. Uh, it's a popular example, I guess. Uh, it's a really nice illustration, I think, of the importance of trying to keep those streaks going. But I do think you're pointing to a really important risk associated with tracking. And I should actually say that my dad, during the COVID pandemic era, um, if you call it that, he got really into wearables because I was trying to make sure that he was walking regularly. So I convinced him to start wearing a Fitbit. And he is obsessed with this. He's been swimming this summer with my son and he's not getting step credit. And he's like, well, it doesn't count. It's not exercise. I haven't exercised today, which I think is really interesting. And that's really a downside of goals as well, because we're so laser focused on what's measured instead of the big picture that globally it can be a risk. And there's some really wonderful research on that. Cool. All right. All right. I've got a couple more things before we open it up. The idea of a mulligan. So I'll just share like really quickly, if you don't play golf, uh, the idea of a mulligan is like, because I, I definitely need them. If your golf is hard enough, if you don't have any do-overs. And so for casual golfers, if you hit one off into the woods on your very first swing, it's customary that you might get one or two mulligans for the round. And that's just basically a do-over. Now, when I read your research, and I'll ask you to go into a little bit about the impact of having a mulligan in your back pocket, our group, we're pretty hardcore. and so. A lot of times when people are on their 66-day streak, uh, if they miss a day, they just restart the clock. And so I asked my team the question, maybe we have to do a control group going forward where we have one group that's the, we're going to be you know, the restart group. If you miss a day, just start over, start your streak. Or maybe we'll give people, you know, it's 10 weeks. Why don't we give them three mulligans, right? Or something like that. And they they get a little grace to themselves. So just know that you may change the whole way we, we do things because of this, but talk to us a little bit about why mulligans <laughs> matter and why they it's not cheating and not actually be a good thing. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought this up. Um, and this is some of my favorite research that I get to feature in the book. And it's actually not my work. It's work by um, my amazing colleague, Marissa Sharif at Wharton and Suzanne Shu of Cornell University. So let me let me tell you about Marissa and Suzanne who did this wonderful work. It was based on Marissa's insight into her, her own life. And it was really a life hack of her own. So Marissa tried to run every day. She was a really avid runner and it helped make her happy and feel high functioning. But she was aware that if she missed a day, she risked sort of throwing up her hands and giving up entirely. But she didn't want to set an easier goal for herself because she knows stretch goals are important to achieving more, right? So she wasn't going to go and say, well, I'll just do it four days a week. She's trying to balance these two challenges, right? Of trying to have that tough to achieve goal of seven days a week, but deal with what researchers actually call the what the hell effect, which is this effect where you throw up your hands and give up after a miss. And she came up with this clever idea to go for seven days a week, but give herself two Chits. She called them emergency reserves. And they're sort of like get out of jail free cards. If she missed a day, instead of saying, oh, I'm off track, she would use one of those emergency reserves. But she tried to use them only in real emergencies. So she thought that, that calling them emergency reserves was really important. And you know, she found this was really effective for her. And, and she and Suzanne Chu in research that was part of Marissa's dissertation work ended up documenting the benefits of this particular strategy, not just for Marissa's personal life, but for lots of other people in other contexts. So they studied it both for people doing a pro productivity task 
and who were getting paid more if they did it every day of the week, as well as for people who were encouraged to walk regularly. And they found that it was actually better to give people a stretch goal, try to do it seven days a week, but give them these emergency reserves, these get-out-of-jail-free cards, than to encourage the same people to either just go for five days a week, which I should note is identical to seven days a week with two get-out-of-jail-free cards, and it was also better to, to do that emergency reserve strategy than to give people the tougher goal of seven days a week. So people had better outcomes when they had the tough goal with those emergency reserves, which I think is just fascinating. And it's a technique that we can all use to improve our, our outcomes when we recognize there's a chance we'll trip up, but we want to give ourselves that stretch goal. Using emergency reserves can help us make sure that we won't abandon our goals. All right. I love that. So... What I, I love that you equated the two as, you know, it's five. Is it seven with two in reserve or is it five? It's the same thing. But I, I think of all the times that people like on a hardcore diet, they have a cheat day. And that just gives them a place to fail without failing. And uh, one of our first books that we wrote together, uh, one of the opening lines was about aiming high. And the reason we always aim high is because inevitably we fall short. And if you truly wanted to achieve something, so there's like, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And all I can say is I'm going to start playing with it and I'll start playing with it with our group. And if we can document it properly with the help of Kaylin and our team, maybe we'll circle back and share some data with you. But I like the idea of a limited reserve so that we have some grace because if last year taught us anything is that life is always going to be throwing you curveballs. And perfection's way overrated. We need to make consistent progress. And if we can net five, that's going to be better than striving for seven and giving up after six weeks. So anyway, I, I, I love that. You, you definitely changed a lot of my paradigm around that. And it also rang true. So that was very cool. I have one more. Then we've got some great questions. The last one, you talk about the no club. and. So much about our book, if to say yes to something, you actually have to say no. And I know the context around this was different, but my takeaway, and I'll let you tell the story, was having a peer group to support us will help us reinforce why we chose on this journey and help us, maybe through examples, whatever, navigate when we should be doing something different or how we can uh, keep our commitments that we've made to ourselves, even when the going gets tough. But the fact that it was a no club, right? And that's a teaching people to say no is one of the most powerful tools you can give them in order to truly say yes. So give us a little bit about that. That was just one of those sections. I read it out loud to my wife and I was like, oh, I love this idea of a no club. It's also because it was about women in the workplace. So I thought this was such a brilliant idea that I decided to do it myself. So I called two of my colleagues, peers at a similar career stage and good friends who were at NYU and Columbia. And I said, I think we should form our own no club and come to each other when we have challenges. And we did it. And it's been wonderful for all of these reasons, you know, so many reasons, even more wonderful than I could have expected. Uh, you know, as I anticipated, I got huge benefit out of the close relationships that helped me form. I got so much great wisdom from these women that helped me think differently about my problems and make better decisions. But there was an added benefit that I honestly didn't anticipate in, uh, in this whole process that was huge. And that was actually when I was asked for my advice 
I found that it boosted my confidence because I saw I really could help my peers think through these challenges and come up with good solutions. And I don't know that I believed I had the capacity to do that as well before. And I'd also see things coming down the pipe that were going to be relevant to me eventually. And I'd I'd realize, oh, this is how I should address that sort of problem. So both it built my confidence. And when I later faced similar challenges, I would feel like a hypocrite if I didn't follow the advice I'd given other people to perhaps say no to this. So it had all these benefits. And it's interesting. I write about it in the book because uh, I think there's this power in advice giving that I discovered as part of a no club. And Lauren Eskris Winkler, who's a professor at the Kellogg School of Management, has done great research on this that I got to be a part of, showing when we're asked for advice, it actually helps us, the advice giver, improve our own outcomes because it boosts our confidence that we can figure things out. It causes us to introspect more deeply than we usually would about a goal that we share with whoever's asking for our advice. And then, of course, we feel like we'd be hypocritical if we didn't follow the advice we've given to someone else. So there's this huge power in in being the advice giver. Well, there's so much that's wrapped up in there. Like I I wrote in my margins um, and asked the question, how good of a manager and parent was I being um, when I failed to ask the question and instead go into providing answers, right? When I give advice, you're tacitly telling someone that you don't believe they can figure it out. That was what I was like, oh. So when I tell my children how to do something versus asking, how do you think you should do this? I'm not building their confidence. And I I thought it was a very big aha because we we focus a lot on the power of great questions. And leadership often is positioned in our group about asking the best questions so a person can find their answers. Because they often, we've always said people, uh, they'll do what you say because you said it if there's an authority. But most people will end up, most often they'll do it because they agreed with you. And if you just start with what they've already agreed to because it was their answer, you've got a much better chance. So it lined up with a lot of my real world, and you just gave science behind it. So asking questions is really powerful um, and starting there. And when we hear, when we give advice, we're more likely to follow that advice. So it's like practice what you preach, right? We don't want to be hypocrites in our own world. So, all right. I so love I've all got, the ways that you digested that. <laughs> oh, I'm just parsing it out and trying to, to translate it into one thing language as well. Um, we've got some questions here, and I'm going to try to get through a few of these because we're about 40 minutes into it. And I want to give people, I mean, you, everybody time to go to bathroom before they go to their next Zoom meeting at the top of the hour. But we've got a question from Michelle. <laughs> um, she's asking uh, a question, and this is central to us. I've often wondered if we underestimate the number of areas we can change in our lives at one time. Um, most people suggest we can only change one at a time. Do you have thoughts on this? So when you think about behavior change, is there a limit to how much of this we can be doing at one time? Yeah, it's a great question. And and I think that advice comes in part from some really fantastic research by Steven Spiller at UCLA. He led a team showing that if we make 
plans for more than one goal at a time. And plans are, of course, really important to success, right? If you don't map out exactly how am I going to achieve this goal, you know, when will I work on it? Where will I work on it? What are the component parts I'm going to pursue? Then you don't make much progress. But when we break down more than one goal into its component parts and, and make all those plans, we actually get overwhelmed by seeing how much is on our plate. And we do worse than we usually would. Normally, planning is this hugely beneficial process that improves our outcomes. But when we plan for multiple goals, it actually harms performance. And so I think that's where the advice comes from to focus on one goal at a time in part. And it seems to be really good advice. And I don't think that means you can't work on multiple goals simultaneously. Actually, I think it just means you want to be focused on one at a time, right? So in a year, maybe you have 12 different goals each that you focus on for a month. And maybe in January, you plan out the first goal and how you'll achieve it. And then you sort of put that on the back burner and keep working at it. But in February, you can turn to that second goal and so on. And it's just really that you don't want to be planning and breaking down um, more than one goal at a time and having it be the key area of focus or that can be demotivating. That's great. That lines up. We usually advise people, especially with behavior change, just you know, uh, make your stand around the thing that's most important. And once you feel like you've got it established, you can kind of go into maintenance mode. And then you can start launching other things. So kind of stagger your launches. Maintaining something is not nearly as difficult as launching something and all of the behaviors that come with it. So I love that answer. Uh, Nicole asked, how do you sustain good habits when you have that slip up that sends you spiraling? So that might lead us right back to the mulligan discussion. But is there any other anything else that you would add to that? Yeah, that's a great question. And absolutely, the mulligan is a perfect answer in terms of thinking about, you know, emergency reserves and how you can deploy that concept in order to get back on the wagon. But I actually think another thing that could be helpful to note is that um, when you think about change, it's useful to think about it as a journey, not sort of a one-stop shop. And the barriers that we come up against on that journey change right over time. And so one reason we sometimes can get tripped up or we can we can struggle is that we might be hitting a new roadblock that's different from the ones that have held us back before and when that's the case it's really important to sort of look up and think about what the barrier might be if it's changed can we look back at some of the science that offers solutions on on how to make change depending on the barrier and say, you know, maybe you had trouble getting started. And so you used a fresh start. And maybe at that point, what you really needed to do was make it more fun to achieve your goal. And that's where you focus. But now maybe you're starting to lose confidence because you've had some failures. And at that point, you might need different solutions. Maybe now you're going to need social support in a different way. Or you'd benefit more from putting yourself in the position of a mentor and coach from time to time. So thinking about what might have changed, in addition to using that mulligan concept, can be really important if you're struggling and want to get back uh, in gear after a failure. Yeah, it was Gretchen Rubin was the author I was failing to remember. Uh, maybe one of the reasons I appreciate how well you cite all of these sources is you can spin off the names and I can't even do my favorite authors sometimes. She also, uh, when I was interviewing her, she shared that restarting a habit after completely, like a complete do-over, right? From that can often be harder because the novelty of it isn't there. Like sometimes the novelty of starting something new is a little bit of a tailwind. I don't know if that lines up with your experience or not. 
Hmm, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure if I know of a specific study on habits that supports that. I'm putting you on the I spot there. That... So if you don't have the answer, yeah. that'll be the one time in an hour I don't that you know didn't have the answer. Showing that. I, I think it's a really interesting observation. And I, I think I do know of any evidence for that specifically, but I can certainly point to evidence on why I think it might be true. And I think one of the things that I write about in the book and I've studied and others have studied too, is that it's so important to enjoy when we're pursuing a goal that um, there's a study that I absolutely love by Ayelet Fish. Fock of University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley of Cornell, who've done this really fabulous work showing that most of us think that when we want to pursue a new goal, the best way to do it is by looking for the most effective route to change. And in fact, a subset of people instead look for the most fun way to pursue their goals. And that tactic tends to be better. So if you encourage people to look for a fun way to pursue their goals, even if they don't get quite as far in a single sitting, they persist longer and have better outcomes. And I think that's sort of related to the Gretchen Rubin insight because the first time you try to start something new, it's probably a little bit fun. It's novel and you might get more enjoyment and satisfaction out of that first attempt. But when that novelty wears off the second time around, you can sort of see how the instant gratification you were getting is going to be lessened. And therefore, it's going to be more of an uphill battle. So maybe that's kind of the best aligned work I can think of to support that idea. You know, when you announce on mm. Facebook, I'm starting my running program or whatever that is, you know, you don't tend to announce it the second time. You know, I fell off the wagon while I was on vacation and I'm restarting my diet. Right. And so I guess yeah. that, that lines up and you also don't get as much uh, the, the impact of having your, your friends behind you and rooting for you. I've got about six more questions. Yep. I'm going to apologize to Jane Scott Desi. And I'm going to go straight to, uh, oh, I guess Scott had two. But when you think about behavior change, is there a strategy that you choose for just you, Katie Milkman, about what what behavior should I choose to change next? How do you, because like on the journey to being the best version of ourselves, if we're really being honest and looking in the mirror, there's lots that we could all work on, Right. When you ask the question, like, how do you prioritize? What, what's next? What's the next journey I'm going to go on? That is such a really good question. I, I, I love it. And I actually, in spite of having done quite a lot of podcasts and had quite a lot of conversations about change, I don't think anyone has asked me that question before. I've been asked if, if it would make you happier or should I really change? But how do we prioritize? what's most in need of changing, I think is probably really a matter of personal taste. In my own life, I think, I think the way that I prioritize is honestly out of, out of all of the things that I could pursue, I try to focus on where I get the most satisfaction. I think I know some people who look for low-hanging fruit, like where can I make the most progress fastest? Let me knock that off first. But uh, in my case, I tend to really try to focus on a goal if it feels like the impact would be large if I could nail it. And that's that's a big theme across all of the research I do as well. Impact really matters a lot to me. So um, I don't know if there's any research that says that's the best way to choose, but it's it's <laughs> it's what I do. So it sounds like yeah, you use greater principle, right? You're using the principle of the thing that could have the biggest impact towards where you want to go. And that's kind of where we direct people in the absence of a better metric. Um, I would say off the top of my head, our values 
right? Hopefully are driving our goals and therefore all of that lines up. But I could choose, I could see choosing something that was more dear to my values, even if the outcomes might be less muted. But I think your criteria, Scott, is your own, but those are two um, that we will proffer up from our personal lives. I try to get both of those lined up personally. I start with the values and then ask your question, like, what would be most impactful? And, and I go from there. So, Katie, we're at the end of our time. I, I didn't, I promised to let people out five minutes early, um, and almost everybody hung with us. So, thank you guys for hanging with us. Um, I hope you got as much value as I did. Katie, thanks again for sharing your gifts with the world. So, everybody go out and buy a copy of How to Change. Um, if you're like me, you'll end up with about 50 or 60 pages of notes that you can go back and access. Very accessible. And the opening story we didn't even get to about Andre Agassi, which is about how you adapt models to yourself is great. And we could go to a whole other webinar, but Katie, thank you for lending your time to us. And thanks everybody for joining us. 